0: to the Evans Space Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 94 Rituximab versus Cyclophosphamide Induction Therapy for Patients with Granulomatosis with Polyangiitis. This was published in JAMA Network Open in November of 2022. Anyone who follows me will know why I'm talking about this paper today. I love talking about incubasculitis, I love talking about target trials, and this one brings both of them together. Now, Today, I'm going to use this trial as a way to explain how someone would apply some target trial methodology principles to an observational question, this one being a very good observational question. I'm not sure how much background people need for this. Look, for angiovasculitis, people need induction therapy. For a long time, it was cytoxin. In the wake of the RAVE trial, people have started to give a lot more rituximab. There's persistent disagreement about whether or not rituximab or cytoxin is better, and this study clearly had a very good rationale for investigating this question. Let me just dive right into the methods and start talking about the problems that they are trying to solve. And for framing, let me just give a brief reminder about the target trial methodology question itself. I discussed this on the podcast quite a few episodes back, so I highly recommend going back and having a listen to that podcast. But, you know, truly, truly I want this to stand alone. So in brief... Randomized trials are very magical, and they're magical for three main reasons. The first being that they fix multiplicity. In observational research, you can ask the same question many different times in many different ways from many different groups, and you wind up getting a lot of chaff. Now, randomized controlled trials are extremely expensive. Their protocols are pre-registered. And the analysis plans are predetermined. So you don't wind up asking many questions. You ask one question, and it's extremely difficult to run duplicate randomized controlled trials. So multiplicity doesn't really happen. The solution to this is to have a pre-specified methodology and to register your protocol beforehand. I actually couldn't find that in this manuscript. I suspect that they did, so I don't want to ding them for that. But uh, just to to know that if you're reading a target trial, the goal is to see that they had a pre-specified methodology and they should say it up front. And then there can't be any statistical chicanery in the sense that people said what they're going to do. They have to do it. And then once they do it, you know that there's no issues of multiplicity, as in someone reanalyzing the same data set from different perspective many times. Anyone who's done observational research can tell you that this happens and it is very tempting. You get your results, you say, you know, I actually forgot to account for this bias. And it would be much more accurate and truthful if I changed this or included this confounder or and I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. But in an ideal world, what we would do is we would say upfront everything that we plan to do and not deviate it from it at all. Another thing we want to take from randomized controlled trials is very clear eligibility criteria and very obvious treatment strategies. And I think they did a pretty good job of this. This is something that all observational data should do. You know, who's in the trial exactly? What exactly constitutes treatment? Uh, but, you know, the target trial approach is to do this very specifically. And I, I think they did an okay job here, although there's some weird caveats. So patients were included in this study if they had newly diagnosed or relapsing GPA with active disease, which they define as having a BVAS or Birmingham vasculitis activity score of at least three. And they had to have received that between April of 2008 and April of 2018. So a 10-year period of inclusion. I, mean, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. It seems pretty reasonable. Now, one thing they did that somewhat deviates from a randomized controlled trial is that they only included people who had clinical findings available since diagnosis and who were followed for at least six months or died within six months. Now, in a randomized controlled trial, you wind up including everybody. You don't miss on these people. So that's kind of a deviation from what I would consider to be maybe a pure trial emulation. There's another thing that they did that I thought was a little strange, and I couldn't totally account for why they did it. Um, patients who had, uh, in the exclusion criteria, who had, had received rituximab for induction therapy were excluded, uh, and people who had gotten cyclophosphamide for induction therapy were not. I, I, I'm not totally sure why they chose that, other than to maybe try and get people who more closely r- replicated the RAVE population. I'm not I'm not totally sure. In RAVE, it was a study of new and uh, relapsing ankylvasculitis, and pretty much everyone who was relapsing had gotten cyclophosphamide. So so maybe that's what they're going for. The problem is that what I really want to see, and I'll talk about this later, is what about people who got rituximab and relapsed? Should we be giving them cytoxin? I mean, I think the answer is yes. That's what the guidelines recommend. But anyways, we'll get to that more later. And then these exclusion criteria kind of were frustrating to me because post-RAVE, post-Ritazeram, pexavas a lot of the big pivotal trials in vasculitis. what I really want to know is about the people who are very sick. Because these are the people where I'm scared. These are the people where I say, man, what should I do here? And in this case, they excluded them. People with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and respiratory failure, people with creatinine greater than four, people who had concomitant and plasma exchange were excluded. Mm, I really wish I had those people. Those are the ones where I'm like, I want to know what happened. Aside from that, what I consider to be somewhat large emission, the inclusion criteria were reasonable, the eligibility criteria were specified, which is important, um, and they did a good job of saying what the follow-up period would be. Now, we covered multiplicity, which is one of the problems that um, randomized controlled trials fix, and that hopefully a target trial that is pre-registered and uses the uh, (laughs) pre-ordained statistical methodology will fix. The next one that I want to talk about is time zero problems. Time zero problems are a huge problem with uh, observational research. I've talked about immortal time bias before. That's my favorite kind of bias. Um, I think it's a really fun one. And just a quick aside to talk about immortal time bias. So the best way to think about this for me is actually in the context of Allopurinol prescribed in cardiovascular disease for about ten to fifteen years. We have been saying that you know, we think that taking allopurinol could reduce your cardiovascular mortality or morbidity. Uh, we think that uric acid is probably bad for your coronary vessels and your vessels in general. So it stands to reason that um, fixing that with allopurinol will be useful. Now, to answer this question, a lot of observational studies have said. I have patients with gout. Some of them got allopurinol. Some of them did not who had more or less cardiovascular disease. Studies that ask that question in that way typically find that people who got allopurinol have much lower cardiovascular disease. But this is where the immortal time bias comes from. The people who got allopurinol had to survive to get allopurinol. That sounds obvious, but the implications are huge. So if I have a patient that I diagnose with gout, I don't start them on allopurinol immediately. If they have one flare and they don't have any tophaceous disease, no erosions, I'm going to say come back and see me in three months. We'll see how you're doing. If you keep flaring, we'll start allopurinol. But if you don't keep flaring, we won't. Think about the implications this has for an observational study that looks at patients with gout who got or did not get allopurinol. The implication is that you have to survive to get allopurinol. If you get allopurinol a year and a half into treatment, that entire time before you got allopurinol is considered a mortal time. Had you had a cardiovascular event before then, you would be in the group that did not get allopurinol, right? And if you're in the group that did not get allopurinol, that means that for every minute you have been in the study where you had gout but did not get allopurinol, if you have an event during that time period, you are not credited to the allopurinol group. You're credited to the group that got nothing, And that means that it introduces a big bias. And the fun thing is that this isn't merely hypothetical. There have actually been some studies that said, you know, among studies evaluating allopurinol and cardiovascular disease and gout, the ones that had time-related biases always showed a benefit. The ones that did not always showed a null effect. And then more recently, there was a large uh, randomized controlled trial that was uh, conducted by the Brits that showed that there was just no benefit to allopurinol among people with hyperuricemia, at least. This means that I think that most of the purported benefit of urate lowering for cardiovascular disease is, is driven by bias in observational research. All right. So let's talk about time zero problems here. You could imagine that a patient who has encrovasculitis and doesn't get induction therapy up front, say they have limited disease and they go on methotrexate, but then gets cyclophosphamide, or rituximab, they have a mortal time before they get cyclophosphamide or rituximab, correct? So a good way to fix this is called a new user design, where you say, I'm going to set my time zero as the time when someone actually gets the medication. This helps fix a lot of the problems. In those allopurinol studies, had we said the first day of enrollment is the first day you get allopurinol, not the day you got gout, then that would fix a lot of the issues. You say, all right, now we're more appropriately assessing the potential benefit of allopurinol. The problem with this is that there is still some immortal time there. When I order rituximab, my patient doesn't get it right away. When I order cyclophosphamide, it's often in the hospital, and the patient often gets it up front. That's obviously my own personal experience, but you could imagine that the time between when you intend to order something and the time that someone gets it could introduce or mortal time bias, but it's likely to be much less. And so in this study, they said, you know, the beginning was when you got the rituximab or cyclophosphamide makes sense. I like it. And then they've analyzed people regardless of subsequent adherence to the regimen, which is also good because we do that in randomized controlled trials, right? We call this the intention to treat principle. It's not about whether you got it. It's about whether we intended to give it to you. So overall, I think there's an interesting ways to think about this and ways that they tried to address these issues. Follow-up periods are pre-specified, which we already talked about, and then the outcome here was defined as remission, the absence of signs of new or worsening disease according to a BVAS of zero. Seems reasonable. They also had definitions for flare and failure, which are a little bit esoteric and not not a big concern, but part of target trials is saying very clearly what your outcome is going to be up front. Causal contrast of interest are often important in target trials, which I think they did well enough here. You know, this is rituximab versus cyclophosphamide, right? We're clearly specifying what the thing is that we're looking at. And then last but not least, in target trial, you need a good analysis plan, and your analysis plan fixes the third problem which observational research, which is confounding. Confounding is a huge problem in randomized controlled trials. Because you randomize people to groups, you fix the problem of confounding, or at least mitigate it, Right. If you have a bunch of people who um, are older or younger or sicker, or maybe they're more affluent, or maybe they are just more predisposed to healthy behaviors, when you randomize them, you equally allocate such things in both groups. And the real beauty of randomization is that in a big enough randomized controlled trial, you are going to allocate them Evenly, both on things you can measure, so measured confounders, and on things you cannot measure, so unmeasured confounders. Randomization fixes both of those. It's extraordinarily difficult to fix that in observational research, but we try. So what did they do here? Well, they said, you know, we're going to calculate propensity scores. Propensity scores are very useful. They're all the rage these days. They help you understand how likely a patient was to get a treatment. And then once you have that score, you can either match people. So you can say, all right, we're going to match each of these people who got rituximab to one that got cyclo- cyclophosphamide. I prefer doing that in case control studies. Or you can use inverse probability treatment weighting, which is where you take your propensity, which is you know the probability of being exposed to the treatment. And then you say the inverse of that is going to be useful, right? So we can use that as a weight within uh, subsequent models, um, such as you know hazard models or regressions and such. And so inverse probability treatment weight is nice because you wind up not losing people now, they included a number of useful variables that uh, they calculate here. So their covariates were you know, year of induction, whether you had granuloma disease, BVAS, age, sex, hematuria, PR3 positivity, various clinical manifestations uh, that related to the disease severity. And all that's great, right? Because we want to make sure that uh, patients who got cytoxin weren't sicker or healthier than patients that got rituximab. It's a very important limitation to observational research when you're not randomizing. So great, we looked at those. Now, they didn't ask some of these other things that I'm looking for, you know, like how affluent were people, where were they treated? And some of their sensitivity analyses in the supplement they looked at this, but that, that's a problem to me. I'd like to know a little bit more about the patients and about their providers, because that way we can like, you know, make sure that we're actually adjusting for this confounding issue. Now, now one brief thought about confounding. Everyone talks about unmeasured confounding, and I'll say that this is always an issue. There's always unmeasured confounding. But there's two two thoughts on that. The first is that you don't have to get all of the unmeasured confounders to adjust for unmeasured confounding. Now, when I teach this, I always talk about this hypothetical example of acai berries and whether that reduces cardiovascular disease. And you know, there's clearly a confounder here, which is yoga participation. People who do yoga are more likely to eat acai berries and probably less likely to have cardiovascular disease. But there's also crunchiness and there's the number of bumper stickers they have. Maybe these things are confounders too, but you don't need to measure the number of bumper stickers and the amount of crunchiness because you have yoga participation. If a confounder that you're measuring is heavily associated with unmeasured confounders you're not measuring, you can still kind of adjust for the unmeasured confounders. Say yoga participation perfectly predicts the likelihood that someone is crunchy or like meditates or does some other behavior that we think is an important unmeasured confounder. Well, you don't need to measure the other thing because you measured yoga participation. And if you adjust for that, you're going to get at the other one. So it's not that we can never get to unmeasured confounding. It's just that it's hard to get to all of it. And then the second thing is that in this study, they did this kind of cool thing, which is they calculated an e-value. So let me tell you about the e-value. Now, the e-value tries to get a really interesting question to me. You, you'll never be able to figure out all the unmeasured confounders that could potentially matter. And you'll, you'll never, you're never going to solve that problem. So they said, let's look at a different problem. Let's just say how much unmeasured confounding would there have to be for me to no longer believe that this is a, a true association. And that is something that we can actually measure. You can say, here's my, my, my effect estimate. Here is the confidence intervals. How strong would the association between the confounder and the exposure of interest and the uh, effect? How strong would that association have to be to move the needle all the way into no longer significant? That's all they're asking with the E-value. And it's kind of a really interesting idea because you're not specifically thinking about one confounder. You're thinking about the entire concept of unmeasured confounding. So I kind of like it. I haven't seen a whole lot of validation studies, and I don't know where this falls into the, the pantheon of observational research. But it's something that I'm, I'd say I'm E-value curious and may try and incorporate some of this into my own work. They went on to say, you know, we looked at our propensity scores. We calculated standardized mean differences, which is just saying, you know, did we actually adjust for these appropriately? They did a bunch of sensitivity analyses, which makes sense. I don't want to go into that. And they had a couple of other ways they parsed and analyzed the data. But this is podcast is already going to run long. So let's just get into the results and talk about what they did. So this is where things get a little bit dicey. And when I teach... Uh, evidence-based medicine, I, I often say, you know, it's not the fancy stats, it's the design, and it's just the basic things. And the basic things in this study are, are a little bit problematic. If you look at the people who got into the study, there's 61 rituxim- in the rituximab group and 133 in the cyclophosphamide group, and they were not the same. The people who got cyclophosphamide, 131 of the 133, 98.5% were new users of cyclophosphamide. 56% were new users of rituximab. So we already know that the people who are getting into the cyclophosphamide group are very different. And boy, good luck trying to match or properly wait on those two people who are relapsing cyclophosphamide users. It's just, it's just a problem. I wish those were distributed evenly. The more evenly distributed things like this are, the better your statistical power to do all these fancy shenanigans are. But it, and so in this case, it's like, ah, I don't feel very good about that. And when you look down, you can see there's a lot of differences. People in the cyclophosphamide group are more likely to have lung involvement. They're less likely to have vascular involvement. They're more likely to have kidney involvement. So these these are different populations. Now, we said we're going to wait and we're going to use all these scores and do all these fancy stats. And at the end of the day, none of it mattered. The uh, portion in the weighted analysis was basically the same. They tried to look at the subgroup of people were MPO and GPA. And it was basically about the same. They have an enormous table that compares their primary, unweighted, double robust, adjusted analyses. And it's all about the same. All of the fancy shenanigans we pulled didn't change very much. And so this gets, again, to what I was just saying, which is that often the fancy stats that a lot of people who are reading papers don't understand aren't the main problem. The main problem are the overarching design, the is this the kind of patient that I would see in my clinic, the kind of questions that any clinician can answer just reading through the methods. So that's why I always encourage people to read papers because you can do it. You know, the fancy stats here didn't do very much of a difference. So let's try and put this in context. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is a long-standing gripe of mine with the RAVE trial. And this is, I think people systematically overinterpret the RAVE trial. And here's where people will often say, in RAVE, rituximab was not inferior to cyclophosphamide overall. But if you look at relapsing disease, you'll see that people who got rituximab did better than the people who got cyclophosphamide. That is a true statement, but I think it's kind of misleading. Here's why. What were the people who relapsed relapsing from? Ask yourself that question, and the answer is immediately obvious. They were relapsing from cyclophosphamide. And people who relapse from cyclophosphamide and are randomized into a trial comparing rituximab to cyclophosphamide are probably gonna be doing better if you give them the other thing. It's so funny to me because we, we understand this in other contexts. In rheumatoid arthritis, as far as to say, hey, this is a trial of people who were on TNFs, relapsed from TNFs, then we gave them Jack inhibitors or TNFs. Everyone would cry foul. They'd say, well, of course, the people who relapsed on TNFs, and then you gave them a TNF again. Why would you think that would work? Um, I agree. So then why in the RAVE trial do we say we gave them cyclophosphamide, they relapsed, and then we assume that giving them cyclophosphamide again is going to be great. Now, I'm overstating this a little bit. I do think that people who relapse post-cyclophosphamide, especially if they're in maintenance therapy for a while, I would expect them to do well again on cyclophosphamide. So I'm a little bit overstating the case here, but I, I think that this point is really important. The people in RAVE who relapsed were relapsed after cyclophosphamide, and we would expect them to do better from rituximab. Had everyone in RAVE been given rituximab up front and then been randomized to rituximab or cyclophosphamide, I kind of think that they would have done better on the cyclophosphamide group because we would be selecting for a group of people who failed cyclophosphamide. Again, some caveats there, but as a general principle, I just don't think we can rely on that little factoid. And let me tell you, we don't, because the new guidelines say, if you relapse after cyclophosphamide, you should get rituximab. If you relapse after rituximab, you should get cyclophosphamide. So we're obviously endorsing this principle, even though we don't talk about it in practice. The authors here to say the same thing. They tacitly endorse this. And I, I just don't think that I totally believe it. As much as I'm a first person, I kind of think cyclophosphamide works better than we're saying here. That was a lot, so let me bring it all home. I think target trials are very interesting. I think that the idea is very sound and I think observational data would really benefit from using some of those principles. I've discussed this in prior podcasts, so I don't wanna belabor the point, but in short, there's, there's three main problems that randomized controlled trials fix, multiplicity, time zero problems, and confounding, which we should be doing a better job in observational data of trying to fix those. That said, at the end of the day, I don't think all of the fancy stats and all of the modern methodology necessarily fixes everything. I think a lot of studies live and die by just who got into the study, what questions we asked or didn't ask, and whether or not the patients really reflected the people that you're going to see in clinic. This is why I really recommend everyone read their own papers, because you'll learn a lot. And the things that we saw in this paper were things that any astute reader could have found. I think that's it for this week. I want to thank the French Vascular Study Group. I love them very much, and I think that this was overall a useful study. I thought it was fun to see target trial methodologies applied to this question. I wish that they'd extended it to include people who are sicker, because that's the group that I really want to know about. I don't understand why everyone got cyclophosphamide up front and then rituximab. I really wish that i had seen the inverse of rave, because I think we would have had a very interesting insight into that question. So I think that's another issue that I wouldn't overread. And at the end of the day, I'm left exactly where I was, which is saying that for most patients, I would use rituximab up front but that I think the hate on cyclophosphamide has gone a little too far. There are a lot of patients for whom it would probably benefit. It is probably a good drug, and I certainly think it is a better drug than this trial suggests. So thanks so much for listening. Be sure to share the podcast with friends. Let me know on Twitter what you think about this episode. And as always, have a great day.